Pilate answered him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas! A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left.
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, what happens in these passages in the Gospels could be commented on forever. And it is our glory, actually, I believe, that we will be endlessly searching out what takes place at the cross. For all eternity, we will be given the great privilege of adoring the Lamb of God and also searching out what's going on there. And so I, I want to look at this passage just in a, a short number of ideas. We're not going to touch on every idea, but I want to look at four of them specifically and how they relate to not only our culture, but also us as individuals in need of a savior. First, I want to look at the political rejection that Christ receives. What happens in Luke, as Luke is commenting about a great narrative of warning against the nation, if she continues on in her sin, Luke is highlighting the fact that the received political establishment in Israel was the one who began to reject Jesus Christ, both a religious element and a political element, or you can understand them as being a, a, a aspect of religion and an aspect of political government. Uh, really, they are the same thing in the way that, that Israel is, uh, is set up at this time. It's not one versus the other. And then after that, I want to look at the political, uh, how the political rejection becomes a popular rejection. And by popular, I don't just mean that it was 
popular in one sense. I also mean that it was popular in the sense of a politic or a body politic who was aligned together and they cry out with one voice for him to be crucified. From that, I want to look at Jesus' suffering that he experiences on the cross, how it relates to us, the kingship that he receives as, as a unique aspect of the gospel, something that we actually don't see directly in the text. We have to refer to the larger gospels themselves but here we see plainly his reception of that title as king. And then finally, the scattering of the people as a central aspect of what the gospel really is about. What we see in this passage, and really in every gospel passage considering the crucifixion, is something that Jesus Christ does alone that we play absolutely no part in, and it requires a simple and humble reception. And that simple and humble reception is the only alternative other than a scorning and a rejection of Christ. And so this simple rejection really is the beginning way in, in how we make progress in the gospel, and it's the way that we continue in the gospel. It's not just the way that we come to Christ, it's the way that we progress in holiness is a continual reception of a spirit of repentance and a receiving of a grace or a righteousness that is not ours. So uh, very quickly, I want to examine the political rejection of Jesus Christ. Some people see this happening in, in the Gospels, or perhaps you've watched maybe a, a Jesus movie, and you think Jesus is a, a victim of a conspiracy that was done in secret, and surely the, the religious leaders did have a trial that was in secret during the night without witnesses, without announcing it, uh, and they called on witnesses who were proven to be contradicting each other. They found no uh, nothing to charge him with, and at the same time, it happened in the open, and it happened, and it was well-received. It, was it wasn't a small political conspiracy. It was received by all of the political officers of that day, and we see this, how he goes back and forth between Pilate. The entire religious leadership assembles before Pilate and then takes him uh, takes the Lord to Pilate. It's not a few rabbis going off on their own. It's not a few members of the Sanhedrin. The 70 elders of Israel all together joined in a conspiracy. And we know of one or two people that were possibly not involved. This is important to understand. It wasn't as if Christ was killed by some rogue group. Christ was killed by the majority of the religious and political leadership of the country. Verse 1, we see the whole company of them. Before that, in the, in the previous chapter, it's, a, it's the assembling of the elders of Israel. Now, this is a, extremely important to see, especially in light of the various times that the leadership of Israel had sinned in various ways. When you, when you have Moses on Sinai with Aaron and the elders, most of them did not participate, but then some of them do participate in the idolatry. At this point, when the very Son of God is come in their midst, they all together conspire against him and throw off the Lord's anointed. All of the religious leaders were involved. Verse 2, they began to accuse him saying, this man is misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. You have to understand that Caesar's oppression of Israel or Caesar's control over Israel was a judgment by God that God had established. And here they're actively advocating for Caesar to continue to be their king. They are rejecting the Lord's anointed. They are rejecting the Lord's kingship and are instead desiring to have him continue to be their king. 
This is so important to see, especially in the light of the various exiles that Israel had been, uh, been subjected to. Over and over again, God judges her and gives her a ruler who is not his ruler, or although it's his ruler only for a time, they desire to continue to live in a state of judgment and exile. He says that he himself is the king. And so after questioning the Christ, Pilate then has a duty to acquit him. He finds absolutely nothing, uh, nothing wrong. He says, I have found no guilt in this man. And Pilate at this point has a moral duty to acquit Jesus Christ. Pilate sins in this way before God. He does not establish justice, but rather he leads the innocent away to slaughter, and he does so at using Christ as a political bargaining chip. Now, again, I don't want to leave the text too much, but the history that goes on between Pilate and Herod at this time, there was a little bit of a faction uh, or a factious relationship. They didn't exactly have a friendship going on before this. And Pilate sees, as soon as he discovers that Christ actually could be tried in Herod's jurisdiction, to send Christ over to Herod. And it's more than just simply a a phrase we use today as passing the buck. It wasn't just that Pilate didn't want to have uh, blood guilt on his hands, although later we will see him attempt to not have blood guilt on his hands, though he does. Pilate uses Jesus Christ in order to curry favor with Herod and in order to use him as a way to establish this friendship between the false king of Israel, as we're going to see in just a second. Rather than release him, he uses him like a bargaining chip. And in verse 8, we see Herod's contempt of Jesus Christ, a contempt which, should it be done to a normal person, would be disgusting. But when considering that this is the very Son of God himself who is on trial for a, a crime that he did not commit, it is absolutely disgusting. Herod sees Christ, and when he sees Christ come to him under a capital crime, turns it into a point of entertainment. Verse 8, because he had heard about him, he was hoping to see some sign. Brothers and sisters, our Lord did signs and wonders in, in order to show the heart of the Father, that the heart of the Father is concerned about blind He's concerned about those who are lame and cannot walk, those who are sick and are not able to be part of the community, those who are lepers and have to live outside the camp. Our Lord used the signs and wonders that God gave him in order to testify about the heart of the Father. And here, Herod wants him to be a court jester, doing some sort of sign before him in order to entertain him. This is exactly what happened with John the Baptist and Herod's father. This is the next Herod in the line here. And Herod is a symbol of a king who should not be a king. Herod received his rule from his father, and that rule was over Judea. And his father was not a true Jewish king. He was a half-Jew, half-Edomite. And he was installed by the Romans as uh, what you might call a governor king or a king who did not really have full authority on his own, but was rather somewhat of an appeasement to the people. Usually they would try to find someone who was half uh, their ethnic region of wherever they were going to install him. And Herod fit the bill perfectly. And so Herod's son now is doing the very same thing that his father had sought to do, is to kill the Christ. And so Herod, this half-Jew, half-Edomite, not in the line of David, demonstrates that he is not the true king and Jesus Christ is the true king. Herod's not part of the line of David. Jesus Christ is. Herod is not a Jew. Jesus is. 
And so here, Herod is showing the mighty evil of the compromised kingdoms in Israel. He's a representative of all these compromised kings. And so Pilate and Herod form a bond of evil in plotting to kill Jesus and sending him back and forth like an olive branch or like a tribute. Uh, They use him as a bargaining chip, as a, a person to be scorned. And they form this bond of evil, and it actually alleviates or, or gets rid of this antipathy that existed between them. In verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity. They used Jesus Christ as a political ploy. This is not just, the rejection of the Christ is not just the rejection of him as the Messiah, but also the rejection of him on a personal level and on the level of his right and claim to the throne. Pilate's attempt to assuage the wrath of the crowd is, is unsuccessful, ultimately, as we saw in our reading. And then he moves from this point in where he, by moral duty, has the, the requirement responsibility to acquit Christ, and then he attempts to shift it. Now, in this gospel, we don't see him doing the washing of the hands that takes place in other gospels, but nevertheless, the exact same thing happens here with, uh, with Pilate. And it's important to understand this, that as leaders who were installed by Caesar, these two witnesses, Pilate and Herod, show what the Roman response to Christ is. The Roman response to Christ, or the the response of the empire, is absolute disdain and rejection. Our our Lord is rejected by uh, these these kings, and such is the the event that fulfills Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us rid ourselves or let us tear apart his bonds and throw off the restraint. And so these leaders are fulfilling the very prophecies which said that the kings of the earth would not receive this king, not receive Yahweh's king. And it's important to see how not this rejection of Christ is not only political. It didn't just happen with a leadership. It happened also with the majority of the people. Some of us are tempted to say when a person is elected into office, well, he's not my president or that's not my senator, or this person doesn't speak for me. And that's true to some degree. I'm not saying that every particular representative always speaks for you. But I do believe that the way in which God has set up his world is the principle of representation is right. The principle of representation is often very correct. That is, it's very clear and indicative of what it would be if a census or vote was taken. And here in this passage, there is no mistake at all. The people are represented by their kings or by their governors, and it's a right representation. Verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And in fact, actually, if anything could be said here, their leaders are more timid than they themselves are. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Now again, here, Pilate has a moral duty to acquit the Christ, but rather he just simply says to himself, this is politically expedient, it will calm the people down, I will remain in power. Verse 25, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. When we were discussing earlier in the last few weeks the the warning that Jesus Christ is giving to is to Jerusalem over and over again, would that you would know what would make for peace, but you will not have it. It's hidden from you. Here, once again, the final time, 
the, the citizens of Jerusalem desire for a murderer to be released. And in so doing, they are unveiling or un, unleashing the spirit of murder against them. They do not want the Lord's anointed, and so they receive Barabbas. I think it's important to see Barabbas is actually the name for, uh, the, if you unpack the name Barabbas in, in the Jewish meaning, it means son of the father. And Barabbas is not the son of our heavenly father, as Christ was. He's the son of his father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. It's important to see this because it, Luke is trying to say through this historic uh, uh, recording of the event that there is no alternative between the Lord's anointed and some neutral, secular, polite uh, governor. It is Christ or murder. It is Christ or insurrection. It is Christ or hatred, evil, and sin. It is either the rule of God or it is the rule of man. And so Christ's rejection is a political rejection. It's a political statement, and it's the final thing that Israel does, apart from the persecution of the apostles over the next 40 years, that solidifies the judgment that Christ is warning about. Now, we're not going to go into it in very, very great detail, but Christ, again, as the greatest prophet, is saying, if they kill me, the innocent human being, here and now, while the wood is still green, then what will they do when the wood is dry? I, I spend a lot of time with plants. Anybody who knows me or has been to my house knows that I really like plants. And what Jesus is saying here is if you think a tree is dead, there's a simple test that you can do. Uh, some of the arborists probably know about this, is you can take a knife and you can scratch some of the bark. And underneath the smallest or thinnest part of the bark, there will be green fleshiness on inside of that tree. What Jesus is saying is here, the tree is already cursed. It's already dying. There's still a little bit of life here, but what will happen to you when not only the wood is finally dead, the tree is finally dead, but rather the wrath of God being unveiled against the, the nation is full. And then he begins to prophesy that they will call upon the mountains to fall on them. They would rather turn from the wrath of the lamb and hide in the mountains rather than face what's about to come against the, the nation. Uh, a dear brother, I don't know him personally, but a, a, a great uh, theologian that I respect and follow posted on this this very morning, another meditation, see, trying to, to get to the point that so often in our understanding of what goes on the cross, this is totally absent. We think of the cross as merely applying to a, a personal salvation, but we have no understanding of the political or national repercussions of Christ nor his lordship. And so when we find ourselves as Christians in a culture which is increasingly turning from Yahweh and from his law, from applying his standard of ethics as our standard of ethics, his law as our law, when we turn from that, when we turn from that in a decided way, we ultimately are doing what the Israelites were doing this day. They are unleashing a spirit of murder and insurrection against them. We must kiss the son lest he be angry and we perish in the way. The scripture is clear. We must invite Jesus to not only be our Lord individually, but insofar as we can also offer and ask him to be our Lord corporately, city level, state level, federal level. It is our duty as Christians to pray for that and to work for that. And that is not another message other than the gospel that is included in the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything or, is he, or he is Lord of nothing. He is not just Lord over my prayer life. He is Lord over how I work, 
how I treat my family, how I vote, how I do my business, how I seek to bring blessing to neighbors, strangers, friends, how I do works of charity. He's Lord over everything. He's not just a Lord who saves me from sin. That salvation gets made manifest, and it gets made manifest through real ways. And that's really one, one gospel in total. And so there is no neutrality between the law of God or the rule of God and the law of man or the rule of man. It is one or the other. So the people throw off restraint and they revolt against God's rule. And what I find so amazing about this is, is Pilate seemingly is speaking by the spirit of God in a sense. He sees the importance and the gravity of what's going on. He understands as he speaks and is interviewing Jesus and questioning him, Jesus not speaking on his own accord, but plainly telling the truth. Yes, I have been anointed to be the king of this people. Uh, and he, he doesn't even answer it that plainly. He just says to Pilate, you have said so. He appeals to Pilate's innate knowledge of the righteousness of this situation. Jesus Christ is appealing to Pilate have been given some revelation, how small it was, I do not know, that he was innocent and he was the real king. And so Pilate presents him to the people, behold your king. This is uh, wonderfully captured if you're ever wanting to see some art about this. Uh, behold the man is, is a great piece of uh, art and it, and it perfectly captures uh, this moment, Pilate is representing and pointing to Christ, and in the background, we see a mob, and there's, uh, we actually don't see the Lord in this picture, but he's arrayed in white and, and bloody, and uh, it's a wonderful picture because it's trying to point to the fact that they never did behold their king, and we have a duty to behold our king. And so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And then they respond, we have no king but Caesar. Now, we looked at this last year, and, and I wanted to include it again because of the focus that we were going to take tonight. This is John's gospel. This is not Luke's gospel. But they harmonize it so beautifully. Pilate is showing them, behold your king. And then they, again, at a popular level, reject the Lord's anointed. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to be crucified. And what's amazing to me about this, especially with Pilate's understanding, is if you look at the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see over and over again an example of Jesus Christ, though he does kingly things like feeding people, like healing people, like delivering them from oppression, he never allows himself to be called king until he gets to the cross. Jesus Christ seeks to be glorified in the very thing that to us would be humiliation and shame. And yet it's at that very moment we, when we see the nature of his kingdom the most clear. Christ over and over again runs away from the people who are seeking to make him a king by force. But at this very moment when he's about to die for the sins of the nation, indeed the sins of his church, he allows himself to be called king. And that inscription which is over his cross is clearly indicative of this place. He saved others, let him save himself. And then a little, a verse later uh, in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, the king of the Jews. Look how Luke uses this pattern again of two or three witnesses over and over again. Luke is trying to say that Jesus Christ is calling attention as he's dying to his kingship and the nature of his kingdom. 
as we talked about on Sunday, his kingdom is a kingdom that does not look like or, or resemble anything that you or I have seen in the realm of men. In his kingdom, in order to inherit the earth, you don't wage war, you don't act in frustrating ways, you don't act in braggadocious manners, you're meek, you're humble. In order to become the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. In order to be exalted, you have to become humbled. And ultimately, what Christ is showing is, if you want to live, you have to die. That's what Christ is showing as he is demonstrating his kingship. This kingdom not, is not installed by force, but comes as through death. And he is a king who is honored in a sacrifice, honored not by men, but by his father. And really, we see only the very tip of the iceberg of the recognition in man of what has gone on when the centurion recognizes and says, clearly, this is the, the son of God. After this all takes place, something amazing to me is it is at the end of this this reading that we had tonight is the, the, the fact that the people scatter and almost everyone leaves. Apart, apart from Joseph, who will come and take the body away, everyone leaves. And I think that this actually speaks, as I mentioned earlier, to the nature of the gospel. And I want to emphasize this in, in two points. Verse 48, the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they had saw what taken place, returned home beating their breasts. It is right to respond to Good Friday with a sense of solemnness and a sense of the gravity of our sin as, as we sung tonight that it was our sin that held him there. It certainly is appropriate to, to respond to the cross and the, the crucifixion as something that causes us to weep and tear our clothes and lament. But that's not the only response to the cross. And I think actually what takes place in the upper room is very important because Christ understands the, the weakness of his disciples. And so he shows them the, the event in a symbol. He shows them the event by giving them his body and his blood. He, he allows them to, with eyes of faith and only very dimly, see an aspect of what's going to take place. He does that because he knows that none of them are even going to make it. Look closely here. It says, all the crowds... And then in verse 49, all the acquaintances and the women. What group is missing? The disciples. Other than John, in John's gospel, none of the disciples even made it to the crucifixion. When Peter, over and over again, is saying to the Lord, Lord, may it never be, you will never suffer. I will follow you anywhere to the end of the earth. I'll even die for you. I'll suffer for you. Christ knows and speaks to him as a representative of all the rest of the disciples, saying, you're going to be scattered. You're not even going to make it there. And he knows plainly what's going to take place. And I think that this is speaking, again, to the nature of the gospel. Jesus Christ does not need our help. And indeed, both in the story and tonight, we can't do anything about what has happened. The disciples aren't even mentioned, and they're not even there. And after Christ's death is done, after he says it is finished, what is there to do? Good Friday, indeed all of Holy Week, is something that as Christians we simply encounter. We're not in a place, both in history, but even then, his disciples were not in a place to participate in almost any way. In one way, the cross leaves us completely speechless. There's absolutely nothing to say or do, but simply to receive what has taken place, what our Lord has done. 
This points to the nature of the gospel, both in God's salvation and sovereign election. It's very important to remember, God did not ask you to help Christ suffer. And as we think about sin, as we think about paying for our sins, as we think about the guilt that we incur from continuing to uh, uh, commit sins, that guilt, that shame is done, it's done away with by the same exact event. You and I never enter into the suffering of Christ in order to appease the wrath of God, nor to remove sin, nor to eliminate shame. It all takes place at the cross, and we simply hear about it. We simply hear about it and then are offered by faith alone to then participate in it only by placing our trust upon Christ. And even that ability to hear the gospel, the very message being grace, and also the ability to respond to the gospel is a gift given to us by the Father. The atonement is a work of Christ alone. We do not participate neither in the historical event nor do we add anything to it by our faith. Christ does not need our, our help as he is performing his salvation, nor does he consider what our opinion might be. God did not ask you whether or not the Christ should suffer. He didn't take counsel in himself from all eternity past, look forward, see our sin, and then say, I wonder what they would want out of this. Rather, Jesus Christ is the one who is slain from before the foundations of the world. Ultimately, our faith is a faith in which our God dies on a cross and he does not need our help. And this is extremely humbling because in all other religions and all other faith claims, there is some sort of effort for man that man must do in order to earn or appease or receive favor. But in Christianity, the message of the gospel is Christ is Lord. He has made an atonement. Receive it and bend the knee. That is essentially the message of the gospel. As, as uh, Paul says when he's in the city of Ephesus, God's overlooked the former times and commands all people everywhere to repent. And so this is what I hope to impress upon you as we go from this place tonight, uh, that there is nothing that you must do in order to receive this other than to trust. And even that is God's free gift, and he will enable you to do it. And Lest you think that, that that's how you get saved, brothers and sisters, those who've walked with the Lord for many years, that is how you continue in the faith. It's a constant remembering, re repenting from sin, and reflecting upon a received righteousness, alien to us, which comes to us by God's free gift alone. And it's that very faith by which we make progress and are sanctified. The cross of Christ is a reality with which we must reckon but cannot alter. We cannot do anything about it in history, and we cannot do anything about it in the future. Nor can we enter with him into the tomb. And in fact, the very narrative here speaks about the rest of Christ and the nature of the, go of the gospel, receiving the gospel as being a receiving and entering into rest. After Good Friday, in this story, simply comes the Sabbath. We didn't read all the way to the end of chapter 23. I'll, I'll read the very last verse. It says at the end of the, of the book, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, that's saying about the women, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. There's nothing that the disciples, the women who are with him, or the acquaintances do. We cannot enter with our Lord into that tomb, nor does he even ask us to. The only option that we have in seeing the horror, the glory, the suffering, the tears, the, the agony, 
the, the wrath which is poured out. After seeing all of that, the only thing that we are invited to do is to rest. It's a simple, quiet reception of Christ's work. That's what I hope to impress upon you this, this year at Good Friday. I hope to, uh, to, uh, to give you the desire to meditate upon these things and to receive them and understand that ultimately what the main message of, of Good Friday is, is that it is finished and you, you just have to reckon with it. And so the, your, the option is yours. You can either, as these Israelites did that day, continue to throw off the Lord's anointed, or you can through the eyes of faith, behold and receive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We do ask, God, that you would not only give us a grace to behold him, but that this would become for us a daily meditation, that his free work that was done totally without respect to what we could do would become real to us. Lord, we understand that the gospel, as your apostles say, is foolishness to the natural mind. Even so, Lord, we know that your spirit loves to re, uh, remake men and women who are sinners and remake them into people who can receive your word, who can become alive. Lord, we are so thankful that you've given us this grace, and we pray, Lord, that we would emulate Christ in his sufferings and in his death, that we would not only be forgiving as we're sinned against, but, Lord, that we would also be willing and desirous to share the love of God with others. We pray, God, as we go forth from this place tonight, that you would give us over these next few days until Easter, uh, these next two days until Easter, a spirit of contemplation and meditation upon your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.